All right, well, welcome everyone. Thank you so much for joining us again. Uh, my name is Becky Frazier. For those of you that don't know me, I have been at Otter Creek about two years now. Um, I am an MDiv student at Lipscomb, um, and I love it here at Otter Creek, and I'm very privileged to teach this class. Uh, I also did visit Israel this time last year, so it's very fresh on my mind. Um, so last week, Laura Camp, if you were here, talked about uh, Jesus preaching in his hometown of Nazareth and how um, they were very upset by this and they took him to uh, the highest point in the city and were prepared to throw him off of a cliff. And I actually had the opportunity to go to that cliff and so since I had a picture of it, I thought I would show it to you since we talked about this last week. This is Mount Precipice. Uh, behind these rocks here, it's just sheer, straight down. And you can see tiny little houses down here. I mean, this is very, very high up. Um, so, um, Again, as Laura mentioned last week, um, this is um, uh, the reason they wanted to do this is because Jesus had said, you're probably going to tell me the works that you've done in Capernaum and around Galilee do here in your own hometown. Uh, and he wouldn't do those. And so this week, we're going to talk about what kinds of things he did do in Capernaum. Um, so that is our topic for today is Capernaum, Jesus's adult home. Uh, so scripture does tell us that uh, this is what Jesus called his own hometown. When he left Nazareth, he decided to make this his home. A number of his disciples actually uh, were from Capernaum as well, um, including Peter and um, I believe Andrew as well. Uh, so this is um, the white synagogue uh, and out, this is just one of my very favorite pictures, so I thought I would show it, it just kind of helps orient you. Um, so this is in the middle of the town of Capernaum. Capernaum probably had about 1,500 people. Um, and I do want to let you know, I did uh, kind of have a little bit of a technology error uh, as far as I had some notes underneath this and thought that I could present while reading my notes, but you can't do that. You would all also see my notes. So if I forget something or if you have questions, you might see me refer to those and you'll see them on the screen as well. So lesson learned, now I know uh, I'll have to change that for next time. So, um, so Capernaum had about 1,500 people living in it. Um, we don't see anything about Capernaum in um, the Old Testament because Capernaum was not settled as a city until about 200 years before Christ. So we wouldn't see any mention of that in the Old Testament, but it is all throughout all four gospels and is the major hub of where um, a lot of Jesus's miracles were prior to him going into Jerusalem um, and spending some of his last um, weeks there prior to being crucified. So this is where he spent the bulk of his time um, in Capernaum and other areas around Galilee. And I think um, next week or the week after, we'll hear more about um, the region of Galilee in general. Oh, so in this picture, um, so this is looking out the window of the synagogue and back here you can see the Sea of Galilee. So you can see just how close this city was to the Sea of Galilee. It's a major fishing town. Um, so when Jesus comes in and selects his disciples and says, you know, from their fishing boats and says, come follow me and be fishers of men. This is the scene that they're at. This is uh, what they are doing. Their livelihood was all wrapped up in the Sea of Galilee and in fishing here. So this is a map of, um, of Israel. And uh, if this up here zeroes in on um, the Sea of Galilee, you guys can see the cursor when I move it right, perfect. Um, you can see the Sea of Galilee here. Um, so over here is Nazareth. And this is, um, let's see, I would have to check my notes here. Um, 
about 30 miles from Nazareth and about 120 miles from Jerusalem. So a day or two's walk from um, Nazareth and then um, probably four to five days walk to, um, to Jerusalem, which is, um, let's see. Yeah, I'm looking, looking, looking. Uh, right, right here. Um, and they would have taken this road here um, by the Jordan River and then crossed over. Um, so you can see this is Nazareth here. This is Capernaum. Um, Chorazim is another um, city that Jesus talks about. Um, let's see, Mag Magdala is where Mary Magdalene is from. Just kind of orient you there. Um, let's see, so this is another picture of um, of Capernaum, and you can see the difference here. What what stands out to you most uh, between here and here? What looks different? The stones are different. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so the darker stone um, is actually basalt. So that is a volcanic rock. It was very abundant in the area. All of the homes were made of this basalt, so all very dark. Um, and, and Jesus actually talks about uh, this, saying that the reason, um, or I, I believe it's in Matthew, it says that the reason Jesus settled in Capernaum is so that he could take the message of light to the darkness. And I just love that imagery of just how dark this city is because of all of the basalt. But you'll see th that the synagogue here, this is called the White Synagogue. And obviously it's called the White Synagogue because it is white. It's made out of limestone, um, and it's a very striking contrast to the basalt around it. and just looks absolutely beautiful against the sea background. So what you're looking at here, this white synagogue, is actually a fourth century synagogue. So that was not there in the time of Jesus, but it is built on top of the ruins of a first century synagogue. Um, absolutely um, no question that it is first century. It was also made out of the basalt, so it would have been the dark color as well. Um, and then some point in time, I'm not sure when, um, but it was destroyed. Um, and then in the fourth century, um, the, um, they did come back in and they rebuilt this white synagogue, shipping in limestone from other places in the south um, in order to build this beautiful synagogue. Um, and we do know that Jesus preached in the synagogue. So, um, so when we were in the white synagogue, knowing that underneath us is the place that Jesus actually walked was really, really powerful because it talks a lot about Jesus preaching in the synagogues around Galilee and specifically in the synagogue at Capernaum. Uh, so it's just a beautiful thing. Make sure I didn't miss anything in my my notes here. Oh, whoops. All right. So some of the miracles that happened in Capernaum. Um, again, Capernaum is mentioned a number of times in all four Gospels, mostly in the book of John, though. Um, there's a ton of references in the book of John. Um, so the healing of the demon-possessed man that happened in the synagogue, a healing of a paralytic that was let down through the roof. So you remember in Sunday school class as a child, hearing about the friends that let their, uh, that let their lame uh, friend down through the roof because there wasn't room to get to Jesus. That happened here in Capernaum. So those basalt houses, that basalt was very heavy and it wasn't very stable. Uh, there wasn't really a way to shape it and form it into those big bricks like you saw um, that... Um, uh, the, the synagogue was made out of, and so they couldn't support two stories. It was just one story, and then they had a thatch roof. Um, and then there will often be two houses put together with relatives that live there with courtyards in the middle. So that was kind of how they were all set up. 
Jesus also walks on water right outside of Capernaum. Uh, he calms the storm. Um, so his friends are all in the boat. They're terrified. Um, um, you know, they spent their life on the Sea of Galilee, which is beautiful when it's calm and can be very, very turbulent when it's not. Um, and Jesus calmed the storm. Uh, this is also where he healed the centurion's servant. Um, it also says that he healed many and cast out many evil spirits. So people were just coming to him from everywhere. Um, and this is why they had to let the man down through the roof because there were people surrounding him. You couldn't get to Jesus. He was healing so many people. And as he was healing a lot of these people, uh, there were even um, spirits that were saying, this is the Lord as they were leaving him. And that's when Jesus was saying, this is not my time, not yet. Be quiet. I don't want other people to know about this. Uh, he also heals an official son from afar. So he is in Capernaum when this happens and the official son is somewhere else. Um, the, the official says, I know that you can heal my son. You don't even have to come with me. You just have to speak the words. Jesus heals him and then he goes on uh, and doesn't make it home until the next day. He gets home, the son is healed uh, miraculously. And he says, what time did this happen? They said his fever broke and he got up and started walking at this certain time. Uh, and the official knew that that was the exact time that he had been talking to Jesus and that Jesus truly had healed him uh, a city away. Um, and then also, very interestingly, and we'll talk some more about this, uh, this is where um, we have the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. So um, there's a story in, in scripture where they're in the synagogues, Jesus kind of stirring up all kinds of trouble in the synagogue, saying some things that people don't really like. And as they leave the synagogue, it says immediately they go into Peter's Peter's house and his mother-in-law had fallen ill with a very high fever. So Jesus goes in, he rebukes the fever, the fever leaves her and she gets up and she starts serving them. So it's a very short little, um, little um, story there, um, but it's got a lot to do with the city of Capernaum now. So um, as you can see, um, this is another picture of the white synagogue and where I am standing um, taking this picture is Peter's, what they believe is Peter's house. And there's actually pretty good evidence to show that this probably is Peter's house. As Laura had mentioned and as Stephen had mentioned earlier, there's a lot of places in Israel where they say, well, Jesus might have been here. He might not have been here. This could be where the cross was. This, could, this also could be, and that place over there also could be. He could be buried here, but he might be buried here. Uh, but it's very clear that Jesus did stand um, in underneath the ruins of that synagogue and that this um, where I'm standing here, and I'll show you some better pictures in a second, truly was Peter's house. So um, when in the story I just told you about where Peter's, uh, where Jesus leaves the synagogue, it says he left the synagogue and immediately walked into Peter's house. Some places say uh, and stepped into to Peter's house as though he was walking out of the synagogue and just it was just right there. And it truly is just right there. Um, and so some other things that would suggest that this really is Peter's house is that in um, they have done a lot of um, archaeological excavations there and there is a ton of like kitchenware and kitchen pottery and bones from cooking things um, all that all date to uh, the first half of the first century and from there all of that stops so somewhere about the middle of the first century there's no longer any kitchen tools there's no longer you know bones of animals and things that would have been in the kitchen uh, it is it all the pottery from that point uh, goes to lamps 
and to large jars uh, similar to what they would have stored um, scrolls in. Um, and so the purpose of this little house completely changed from a house to a place of worship. Another thing that changed is that this first century home sometime in the middle of the first century was completely plastered over. I mean, this was a very, very poor area. They got, um, you know, very poor, poor fishing town. Uh, they had small houses. Uh, it was a small little town um, and nobody's home is plastered. Um, the only people whose homes are plastered are going to be the very wealthy, um, not, not anybody living in this town. Um, the only things that would have been plastered were places that were used for public use or places of very wealthy people. And we know this is not a wealthy person's house. This was a place that then was converted into um, something that was used for public use. So they had turned it into a church and people would come and they would gather in Peter's old home and they would have church. Um, the first century church would gather in Peter's home and have church. There's also um, inscriptions, hundreds of inscriptions, uh, graffiti, I guess you could say, carved into the plaster and the rocks. Uh, some of them are prayers, some of them are crosses, um, and that is also indicative of the people that visited and came to, um, they're in Greek, Aramaic, Syriac, Hebrew. Uh, it's just amazing. So some pretty good evidence that that truly is Peter's house there. Um, and and uh, the scripture has it the, the way that, um, that it truly happened. So interestingly as well with the synagogue, um, there, a lot of people in the past had argued that uh, perhaps, um, you know, giving evidence to the fact that, that scripture was not written um, is it, it, not accurate. The first, uh, you know, the, the gospels were written much later by a different uh, group of people talking about this history, which, which we know to be uh, somewhat true. But one of the pieces of evidence that they used to say this can't all possibly be true is that they didn't believe that there were synagogues at this point. And scripture is full of Jesus preaching in synagogues. And the argument of the Jewish people is why would you need a synagogue if you had the temple? So up when Jesus was active, uh, there was the temple in Jerusalem, and that is where religious um, festivals were held. That is where religious rites were done. Um, that is where you went for Passover. Um, this is that was where you took your sacrifices. That was the hub of religious activity. Um, whereas today, synagogues are the hub of religious activity for Jewish people. So why would you need a synagogue um, if uh, if you have the temple? So that was a kind of a question that a lot of people had. But again, with this basalt. Um, um, synagogue that is underneath the white synagogue here. It is very clear that that's first century. They have found first century pottery, first century coins. Um, when we were in Israel, they told us that when you were building a new house or when you were adding on, you would throw in a coin with the date um, of the of the year um, that you were doing the construction um, and you would throw it into the floor. And so there's a very clear way to date when some of these things were done. And so that um, synagogue is absolutely first century prior to the fall of the temple. Um, and so there's no disputing that uh, Jesus truly was in that um, synagogue and that there were synagogues around the area uh, that did not function as the temple. They were more just places to read scripture together on Sabbath. Um, they were places where uh, community life happened, um, where you know men got together and discussed what was going on in the city. It was more of like a, a meeting house or a civic sort of building than it was a religious building. Any questions up to this point? I know I've been talking really fast. <laughs> yes, ma'am. And, and then how long did it take for a whole city to be buried? 
Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. So uh, I don't know all of the answers to this, but I can give some insight. And for others of you who might have more insight, I'll let you jump in as well. So in this specific case, we're talking four centuries of difference. And so that would have been 400 years that the temple would have, um, or that the synagogue, I'm sorry, would have uh, been destroyed. And then another one coming and built on top of it. And in that time, there was a lot of unrest in the land. Um, so the Romans again came in and were just trying to wipe out the Jews. Um, and so there was a huge rebellion. So uh, again, the temple, the massive, enormous, huge temple with stones the size of this entire wall here was destroyed. So another stone was not on another one because that is what the Roman government wanted to do to these Jewish uprisers. Um, and so they did systematically go in and kind of destroy some of those places of worship and those uh, civic places. But then there was also a lot of um, uh, between, let's, let's see, I'm think I'm getting my history right, but I think prior to this time there was also some um, some Jewish, Christian, and Muslim fighting going on, and there would be groups that would come in and take over power, wipe out everything, build their things on top of it. Um, so there was a, just kind of a lot of, no, we want this land, well now it's our land, and then when that happened, a lot sometimes they would repurpose buildings, but a lot of times as a sign of dominance they would just wipe out those buildings. So does that make sense? Perfect. Any, anybody else want to add to that? All right. Any other questions up to this point? Okay, great. Um, so this is um, Peter's house. Um, so you can see these two pictures are very different. Uh, this picture was taken in the 70s, and obviously there is something missing. Um, this giant thing at the top is not there. Uh, that was built a little bit later, um, I believe in the, the, um, the 90s. So you can see this inner wall here, um, that was, that, uh, and, and some of these stones here. Um, that would have been the house, the courtyard, that kind of thing that uh, they find the evidence of the plaster and the inscriptions and, and things like that. And then again, in the fourth century, um, you have them coming in and making these um, fortifications, kind of adding on, adding extra courtyards, um, turning it m less into more of um, a place of worship, more of a, a place for civil use, for religious use, rather than for uh, personal private property. Um, so you can see this is, this is a great picture of what it would have looked like um, during the excavation process and other houses over here. And then of course, back here we have the Sea of Galilee. Um, and then over here to this side, this is where the white synagogue would be. And then today, uh, you might be wondering what that massive thing sitting on top of it is. Well, I'll show you another picture and you will see. So it's this church. So, um, so you can see these are some of the walls um, that I showed you in that previous picture. And then the church kind of dips in on top of it. Um, this, this happens all over Jerusalem uh, or Israel and Jerusalem and, and all areas where the church comes in and says, this is a holy site. We're going to build a church here. And so they literally put it right on top of Peter's house. Um, this is the floor inside that church. So it's very, um, it, I mean, it looks big from here, but it's, it's, a, it's pretty small for a church. I would imagine it would only fit about 75 people. Um, and then the floor is um, glass around the center. So you can see directly into that center circle that I showed you from the slide before. Uh, so this part here um, would look into this part here. Any questions about about that? Yes, ma'am. Um, from here? 
from this picture? No, these are these are from the the glass floor of the church. So that that um, these houses would have been very simple. They would have had one or two rooms. Um, so this is simply the church that was built on top of it, and the way that the floor is is shaped so that you can see it is it is. Mm -hmm. No, um, it's just a way that you can look into the um, the area beneath. It's a holy site. They don't want people trampling on it, so you can kind of peer over into it. Sure. If you had to give square footage for Peter's house, what are you talking, 300 square feet? I'm real bad at math. I have absolutely no idea. Um, a dorm room? Uh, a, a dorm room would be, would be generous. It's original. Yeah, yes. Um, but again, they, they, they did have large courtyards, um, and so, um, uh, and that's where the kitchen area would have been kept and things like that. You didn't cook inside, uh, just got too hot, too much smoke, things like that. So the cooking would have been done in the courtyard outside. Inside would have been for, for sleeping, um, for you know staying warm, things like that. Uh, but most of life happened outside of the home, not inside of the home. Um, and I believe they also had um, those thatched roofs and people could go and sit up on top of those and, and things like that. So uh, 10 by 10, 8 by 10 by 10. Yeah, 10 by 10. yeah, pretty, pretty small. So in the, this uh, picture that I showed you previously, this is, um, if you look at like an aerial view, I know it looks like, um, you know, in your imagination, it looks like there's a lot here. This is really all there is. So when I say 1,500 people lived here, <coughs> basically 1,500 people lived in this, what you're seeing. There might be a little bit more off the camera, but not a lot. So uh, that was one thing that really surprised me when I went to um, Israel as well, is just how small all the, the cities were. Um, and um, to your question earlier, uh, they call a lot of the archeological digs, that those are on tells, which are hills that really truly are just, um, as you go lower and lower, it gets more and more ancient. It didn't start out as a hill, uh, but as, um, as the city died, as things burned, as war and conquest happened, and then people came back, they would just build on top of that. Um, so, yes, ma'am. Yes, yes, there are. So there is um, a, I believe it's a Franciscan church uh, just off to the side of this. So there's a much larger church that has um, Franciscan monks uh, that care for the property and take care of it and have for, for absolute centuries. Um, and so people that worship in this church are um, mainly visitors to the area. Um, I, I don't think in Israel there are, there is somewhat of a Christian presence, but not in these areas, there's not a lot of a Christian presence that they would be worshiping at this church. That might be a good pilgrimage spot, but it's not um, someone's church home. So, um, and then uh, as I said, there's that kind of the, the church and the dormitory next to it, um, and that's where the monks live and things like that. But they do have mass here um, a couple of times, that, or I think four times a day, so you can um, go in and, and hear them uh, do mass uh, as you're sitting and, and looking at down the, the floor at Peter's house, so it's a pretty neat experience. Any other questions? All right. Okay, so um, good. I think we're going to have plenty of time to talk about um, a scripture that takes place in Capernaum. Um, before we move on to that, are you sure there's no more questions about the city of Capernaum? Yes, ma'am. One of the interesting things about that city is that 
coming down the church from Petersburg is owned by the Catholic Church. Yes, it is. But the, the people of Israel are uh, very protective of sites. So the reason that church was built over Peter's house in that way was to so it would not impact the house and it would still be safe. Yes, absolutely. Yes. I think you mentioned the synagogue is very near the house. Mm -hmm. And the synagogue, according to our guide, was used as a community center mm -hmm. uh, in addition to a place of, of worship. Absolutely. So the house is tiny. But it is within a few steps yes. of the synagogue, which is very much part of the community life of, um, of, of ancient Absolutely. It absolutely would have been. Other questions? All right. So uh, as you can see, this is a lot of verses, but I tried to go in and pair some of it out, and it, it just... It didn't work that way. So um, if we could maybe um, get three or four people to read um, John 6, 24 through 68. Just read a handful of verses. When you get tired of reading, stop and somebody else will pick it up. Um, I, I trust that uh, we won't have too much of a delay between, between the readings. Uh, so John chapter 6, verses 24 through 68. not all at once. <laughs> once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you were looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for the food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they said to him, What sign are you going to give us then, so that we may see it and believe you? What work are you performing? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, and raise them up at the last day. For my Father, for my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. 
So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things at the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So um, I know that was a lot to take in. Um, so what stands out to you most from this pas passage and why? I'll, I'll go ahead and start and get the conversation going. So one of the things that stands out to me is that they're asking Jesus for a sign. What sign are you going to give us to prove that you really are who you say you are? And we just looked at this long list of miracles that Jesus had performed in Capernaum. Um, in fact, as Laura talked about last week, um, he says in his hometown, um, surely you're going to ask me to perform some of these signs that I performed in Capernaum. Well, I don't know that it would have actually done them any good if he had because Capernaum and Chorazim and all these places around Galilee saw it and most of them 
still didn't believe. So it just shocks me. What kind of sign are you going to give us when he'd been giving them sign after sign after sign? I don't know. I personally think that I'm guilty of doing that same thing sometimes, though. Um, God, how, how do I know I can trust you when I have so much to look back on in my life and know that, um, that God has been faithful and provided for me time and time again? Anybody else relate to that, or is that just me? Yes, sir. At the beginning, he said that in spite of all that he had done, the reason they were there following him is because they ate. Yes. So I, I think even today, we have plenty of money, and we have food, and a new car, and a nice house. That's, that's good enough yeah. sometimes, in spite of the miraculous things beyond that that he does. Yeah, that's a great point. Yes, sir. Well, you're really bewildered about what he's saying about God. Yes. And um, I, I have not read this week about John Potts, who's one of the early Christian martyrs. And one of the one of the things that he was martyred for was he was saying it's it's not literally the blood and body of Christ. Hmm. It's symbolic, and that's what they're arguing about here. So I just. Hmm. A hard teaching. Yeah, absolutely. We know now about the resurrection. Right. We know now that part of the story that they didn't know then. Mm-hmm. But if I were in that audience and heard someone say, those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, mm-hmm. I would go, no thanks. Right. <laughs> it's a little weird. <laughs> No, that's a, that's a great point. Absolutely. I think we can look back and say, oh, they just didn't have enough faith. But again, if somebody were to, to say those things to me, I would think, huh, you're special. And, and probably <laughs> turn and walk away like many of the disciples did. What else stood out to you guys? Um, so we talked about um, a little bit, some of you said, um, you know, they're saying this is a hard saying um, and the, some of the reasons that it was so difficult. Does anybody have anything to add as far as what would have maybe made that a difficult saying? Um, then my next question is, is this still difficult for us today? So given your point, as far as we know what this means, um, is this something that's still difficult for us to believe today that Jesus is the bread of life and that Jesus has something to offer us that we can't work for on our own? Yes, sir. Well, in the, in the sense I was talking about, if, it's, if the body and blood is something magical and real that we take into us and it suddenly makes us satisfied as, as manna was intended, that's, that's one thing. But if we, I don't wrestle with that. I wrestle with is the bread of life enough for me. Right. And that's what was already said by somebody else. It's like, is this, Jesus is saying, I'm enough. You know, quit, quit, quit looking elsewhere. Quit, quit looking at your career progression, your car, your house, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and they got really dissatisfied with manna. Yes, they did. I would like to try something. And that's probably good, like, cool, for exercise or whatever. They got dissatisfied with it. 
when it was supposed to be meant for yeah. <laughs> yes, ma'am. We talked a little bit each week about the literal versus the figurative and the use mm-hmm. of metaphor um, in the Jewish culture. And so I wonder, how how did they hear this, the, the saying about the flesh and the blood? Yeah, that's a great question because uh, this passage does come from John, and this is the first of John's uh, or Jesus's "I am" statements uh, that are throughout uh, the book of John, where he takes something that they are already doing and says, um, "No, this is about this is about me. It's not about what you thought it has been about." So um, I think that um, a lot of um, the, this bread of life has to do with um, with Passover um, and and things like that, as far as um, as symbolism of bread as live manna in the wilderness from Moses um, sustained them for the day um, and then the the, the blood um, or the wine as blood representative of um, the blood on the doorpost and um, some other things as well um, does anybody else have anything to add to that that I'm not thinking about yes sir well I mean, so yeah so pace is certainly part of it and, and I think that multiple cups that suffer and I think you can go through that I mean, we've done a lot of that particularly with Union, the Lord's Supper analysis, but the other half of this is that he takes also young poor. So what you have is <coughs> saying this is my flesh and this is my blood, my body, is actually, if it's in Hebrew originally, is the same phrase that's used with the high priest at the temple. So when you go and present, they would buy and sell animals and bring them to be sacrificed. And one of the things that you would do is that you would say, this is my body, this is my blood, done for my forgiveness, and and they use real flesh and real blood. So I'm I'm accusing Jesus of mixing metaphors here, (laughs) um, that in fact there's several things going on here. There is an allusion to Yom Kippur, there's an allusion to the sacrifice at the temple you just mentioned, which is 120 miles away, still in operation, which everyone understands. So those words are the same words. Um, it's, 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 It's like Jesus using the Hebrew wedding vow saying, I go to prepare a place for you. He yeah. uses a, a, a literal Hebrew vow of what a groom would say to a, a fiancé, I'm going to prepare a place, I'm going to bring you to my father's house. I think he's doing the same thing here. He's taking both the, the page, he's taking the Passover symbolism, but he's also taking the sacrifice of the Yom Kippur. And I don't think he's saying, we talk about the shocking my body and blood, I think he's saying this is my body and blood. Hmm. It's, it's a sacrifice, and, and, and so in one way, he's actually undermining the temple. You talk about the rise of the synagogue yep. and post-diaspora. So they come back from Babylon, they bring the synagogues back, so the focus is already shifting away. But what Jesus is calling for an even bigger shift, so I know I'm rambling here. No, this is fabulous, yeah. So you've got several things going. You've got Jesus borrowing from Yom Kippur. You've got him obviously making what I think we've done a pretty good job with of looking at the, the Passover imagery. And, and I think you almost have to, much like this whole class, I think, you have to really see this in context and layer it out. And he's also playing, in, he's also playing between <coughs> Aramaic and Hebrew. I think that's going on here, too. I think part of what we get is a fragmentation. And, of course, we're looking at it in English. So right. it's even more confusing. I think it's a play on metaphor. I think it's like what he does in so much of his teaching before his audience. And I think it's a hard saying because he's actually foreshadowing a deep shift hmm. from the temple, from Jerusalem, 
as the center of all of these functions, both atonement and the idea of deliverance in life, and he is shifting it. And, and I think that's where I've struggled over the decades trying to come at the hard thing. Hmm. That's fabulous. Thank you so much for your input there. I really appreciate it. Any other comments on that? I just want to say, yes. B, is this still difficult for us today? And any difficult for today? And I feel like um, it has taken me to the age I'm, I am now to have had enough difficult experiences that I wasn't counting on that have made me more sensitive to the fact that I'm so desperately hmm. dependent on Jesus and on God each day to sustain me today that it, it, it's actually easier now than it was 20 years ago um, for me because I've just had, had more hard things happen. Yeah. And um, I, 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 I am grateful that I have to beg God to sustain me for today, yeah. every day. Even though life is so hard and I regret some of the things that have brought me to this point. Um, so it's, I guess I, what I'm now rambling trying to say is that uh, that the teaching, even though <coughs> I, I heard it as a young child before I could understand what it meant, that um, it, it, it holds true for the duration of my life and for generations. Hmm. And it's a truth that can be passed down for generations. Absolutely. We may not recognize the truth right at first, but if we stay with it and wrestle with it and come back to it, it's just a powerful, powerful truth. And I've no doubt now that Jesus is the bread of life. Right. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, so I think that we are getting close to time so I have one more question um, and some of you have kind of alluded to this earlier but we'll very quickly talk about what other breads do we find ourselves seeking other than the bread of life which I should have capitalized sorry um, so Christ as the bread of life as the bread that sustains us what other things in our lives do we sometimes seek after to sustain us what's something maybe you're struggling with right now you don't have to answer that or maybe something from your past I think it's in, at the end of the passage, he kind of alludes to Judas, mm-hmm. kind of after verse 68, yep. that, and, and you just wonder, because John's timeline's not, it's all mixed up, yep. you wonder when when some of this was said, and if it was Close more to that specifically or not, yeah. to Judas, but it does, you, we find out eventually that Judas managed the money yep. for the group, and that he was stealing the money. Um, <coughs> And I think even as disciples, that's money's an easy addiction to yeah. to get some sort of nourishment from. Absolutely. And and with money, what Judas also could have been looking for was also power. So there are some that say maybe he was just trying to start whatever it was that Jesus was trying to start with this kingdom. He was trying to get the ball rolling on that. And again, the disciples were arguing about this all the time. Who's going to be at the right? Who's going to be at the left? Who's going to be the one in power? Um, and Jesus no, it's not about power. It's about it's about me, the bread of life. What else, guys? One, one more minute. Man, we're all a lot better Christians than I am if you don't struggle with that. 
All right. Well, you are all dismissed. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, come back next week. I believe Stephen is going to be um, talking to us next week. You won't want to miss it.